1: He kona e tēnei nā te reo irirangi o it's pretty squelchy today, Jeff.
2: It has been very wet. Yeah, we've got lucky today with the weather, fortunately.
1: And so we're walking down the hill away from the hut, down to where the do you call them experiments? Experimental planting?
2: Yeah, yeah, that would be right. Simply put, it's an experiment looking at how to best grow back native forest.
1: Kia ora, no mai harumai kito tāto au hur Hello and welcome to our changing world, Ku Clerk and Canon Tane. I'm with the Auckland University of Technology Living Laboratories project manager, Jeff Silby, and we're at Paurawa Creek in Orake.
2: There's about nine and a half thousand trees on 2.2 hectares, and they're laid out in a scientific design so we can investigate how forests might grow back over years it's been designed a bit like an experiment so we've selected some common restoration species and put them into blocks um, but aware too that this is a, an urban forest that people will come and visit and and you can, you'll be able to see it from the train on the way to the city and the houses across the valley and there's a new bike path here so we're aware too that we're still restoring um, some land and, and we, we wanted to look like a nice forest too. So in our design, we sort of we took that into consideration a little bit as well.
1: This is one of the experiment sites of the Living Labs project and the collaboration between AUT and Nati Fatwa Orake. But the restoration experiments make up just a small part of a much larger site here. An area of land previously used by a pony club that was returned to Nati Fatwa Orake in 2018. And they have an exciting vision for its future.
3: What we want this to be is a welcoming place for people. So while this land is owned and is a property of Ngāti Patu ōrake, it's a place where we want to be open to the world. We want to break down those barriers where people are hesitant about um, approaching the culture. And so that's that's the objective of that. And then there'll be other points where mātauranga can be interpreted throughout the gardens.
1: This is Rob Small.
3: I'm gardens curator here. I'm Napui uh, Tutuma Hurihuri and uh, I've also been the designer of this upper area of the of the whenua here, creating what I think represents or will represent an ethnobotanic garden, so a garden that represents the culture of te ao Māori, and the garden's deliberately developed so that there are points where we can interpret Ōraki mātaura.
1: It's a crisp, sunny morning, and Rob and I are standing on a gravel path in the centre of a large veggie garden.
3: So this is the marakai, which has been developed as a circular garden to denote energy, which is about the belief that everything has a Mori, a life essence. And the paths are due north, south, east, west, because we can tell stories here about how our tūpuna observed the universe around them, So this is part of the whole garden development on the upper area. It encompasses this community garden where we uh, every Friday uh, harvest and feed around 50 families usually, but it can be more on occasions. And certainly in spring, summer, we we have a bountiful uh, production here. So this garden was designed specifically so that we could interpret but but so that we could provide good wholesome food for the whānau, and with supermarket prices being what, what they are, I think it adds huge relief to many of those families.
1: Even though it's the middle of winter, the marakai has plenty going on. There's silver bead, rainbow chard, broccoli and cabbages, all looking ready to eat. And later on in the morning, a team shows up and starts assembling grow tunnels. But Nati Fatua Ōrake's garden plans don't stop there.
3: On the other side of the, that building is the beginnings of our mara rongoa. This is the wellness garden. And at the far end of that will be uh, a mara raranga, which is a weaver's garden. So we're reckoning on having about 52 varieties of flax, harakeke. And uh, we'll also grow things like uh, pingao and, and other things that were used in weaving. And then the final touch to that will be the ancestors garden which is near the entrance and that will show the typical gardening of kumara that were done in little hills or puke and they were set out in perfect lines in a quincunx pattern that's like the five on the back of a dice.
1: And there's more happening or in the pipeline too including apiaries, mushroom growing and a large native plant nursery which is already cranking out trees local to the area. This is all sketched out in the master plan.
3: That included a, a range of things, a community garden, including gardens to represent, I guess, the culture of Ngāti but also uh, a significant revegetation programme on the rest of the Whenua, which is, I think, 38 hectares.
1: This site is bordered by Keppa Road at the top and then slopes all the way down to Powderwa Creek at the bottom. A gravel car park and little hub building sit at the entrance and then down a first slope is the marakai to the right and the plant nursery to the left. And then further down again are the Living Labs reforestation planting experiments.
3: So the revegetation program is quite an aggressive one but it was done on uh, the Whenua Rangatira and that evidence is there today. And so as we revegetate this land We're really happy to be partnered by AUT, who are doing their research work. But revegetation is something that I've personally been involved with as director of regional parks over the years, and I've seen the evolution of methodologies as as that's progressed. So I have a keen interest in what's happening.
1: So a key goal of the Living Labs project is to figure out what's the quickest, cheapest, lowest risk way of planting trees to get from farmland to well-established native forest. Now, if it was a natural forest disrupted by, let's say, an earthquake or a landslide, this would happen
0: by a process called succession. Normally, there would be seed sources close by, so birds, wind would bring seeds to the site, and there'd also be some re-sprouting from within the site, and the vegetation would return. This is Professor Hannah Buckley, an ecologist at AUT, and one of the Living Labs project
1: co-leaders.
0: And so what happens is, Early on in that process, you get the species that are able to regenerate quickly. So those species that can disperse well or species that can re-sprout quickly and grow quickly. When we do revegetation and restoration, we try to mimic those natural processes. So we try to plant what we call those nurse trees. They tend to be those earlier successional trees, the trees that you would expect to come back in more rapidly. And we do that because there's a lot of weeds. And so here at this site, there's a lot of kikuyu grass. So we want to try to create canopy cover as quickly as we can to shade out the kikuyu grass so that the native species have a better chance. So later on in succession, those early successional species, um, once they've come up, they've created a canopy cover, you get what we call those later successional species, and those are species that are often more competitive in the long run, they're slower growing, uh, but they have the ability to regenerate under a closed canopy, for instance. And so here at the Living Laboratories sites, what we're trying to do is, see if we can plant those later successional species at the same time as the early successional species, just speed up that successional timeline. Paurewa is actually one of three sites that the Living Laboratories Project is researching at. One is here at Paurewa Creek, one is at Tumuri Regional Park and the other is um, by Miranda, Pukorokoro, so that's in north Waikato. And are the experiments that you're running at the three different sites all different? Yeah, so there are common elements. So the common element to the research is this idea of trying to speed up succession. So all of the sites have nurse plants, a combination of nurse plants and later successional trees planted together. They're all planted in blocks and the blocks have different kinds of treatments. So here at Pōriwa, it's about the species composition and the distance from the source patch, bush patch. At Timuri, Our treatments are the spacing of the plants so we're looking at um, cheaper upfront costs by having wider spacings of plants um, through to more expensive more dense plantings and at Pūkorokoro we're looking at different environmental contexts so we have two different blocks within the experiment on different aspects and also an irrigation treatment. So
1: here at Paurawa it's all about those initial
0: nurse plants and the distance
1: to the remnant patch of bush at Keppa Park. Jeff takes me for a stroll into the experiment itself.
2: This is our mixed area.
1: So we're kind of wading through that long grass, but you can see different plants that you guys have put in.
2: Yeah, so these are our nurse. This is our mixed nurse species and and just four species. And that's kind of a bit of the science, just limiting the number of variables instead of having uh, heaps of different plants just sticking to four.
1: The four nursery plants that they're using in this mixed area are Nayo, Karamu, Mahoe, and Tarata. And one of the questions they want to look at is related to that distance to the native bush. So does having this mix perhaps make it more attractive for birds so that they're more likely to spread seed in this block? Because the other option is one plant only.
2: Here we're getting into a, a kanuka block here. These ones are a little bit harder to see, but if we look down to the 2019 planting, um, oh, you yes, can you see, can there's, see there's a karnuka block there. There's one over there. There's one going down the side of, these ones are a little bit taller in that grass there.
1: Looking across this land that slopes down in front of us, you can make out these different blocks of nursery plants. They've planted 10 in total now, so five just kānuka and five the mixture of four plants.
2: So yeah, in, in amongst running through these nurse blocks, we've got the lakes successional species, Puriri, Totara, Tirairi, and we did have some Rimu, but they didn't go so well after that big drought.
1: The drought he's referring to happened in the summer of 2019-2020, not long after they had planted some of the blocks. They lost 20-30% to of the trees, so they had to go back in and replant them. The late successional trees are spaced at 6 metres throughout the block, and they're tagged, as are some of the nursery plants.
2: They'll be the ones that we focus on, for measuring growth as a sample because there's nine and a half thousand we we don't want to measure all of them so we, we take a sample of the nurse trees but we will measure all of the lake successional species trees there's about 800 of them as well
1: that's right they are going to be measuring the growth of
0: individual tag trees here's hannah again often with experiments forest experiments we monitor at the plot level but in this experiment we're monitoring at the individual tree level and that's because we want to understand the relationship between tree growth and the microhabitat that those trees are in. In fact they've GPS marked where they're planted and put these on a map on their website.
1: You can click on an individual tree and see how tall it is when last measured. At the moment, they're taking baseline measurements of growth and survival of the trees, but once the blocks are up and running, they'll take measurements every three to five years.
0: But that's not the only data they're gathering. We are interested in, I guess, the co-benefits of restoration planting. things like carbon sequestration and growth of native species and how those different growth rates differ in different places and different contexts so that we can help to justify why we would use native species in that in that carbon kind of context but also in terms of biodiversity gain. So we're monitoring not just biodiversity by counting the species that are associated with the restoration experiment, so that's plants and birds and invertebrates and below-ground biodiversity, microbes and so on, um, but also the ecosystem functions of those biodiversity components. So we're looking at things like water quality, decomposition rates, soil health. A huge number of things to look at, but wait, there's more.
1: Because the AUT Living Laboratories project has also partnered with Life Plan, which is a global biodiversity project run out of Helsinki.
0: That project is about using state-of-the-art biodiversity monitoring techniques to get a picture of how biodiversity can be monitored and how it's changing globally. So the AUT Living Laboratories project is one of a hundred sites globally, and we're the only site in New Zealand. And so the project is monitoring an urban site and then a more rural, natural site, alternatively over a six-year period. So our first site. Is this one this is counted as an urban site because we're in an urban context and the monitoring is happening down in Kippa Bush and we are then pairing that monitoring that is part of the life plan project with the monitoring that we're doing in the living labs project so that we can compare the two across the restoration site and Kippa Bush which is the reference site and that also feeds into that global project. The Life Plan project
1: is looking to understand trends in biodiversity at a global scale, especially in response to climate change. So they have to use the same tools and collect a specific set of samples to match up with these other sites around the world.
2: Some are quite interesting. For example, there's a malaise trap, which looks like a tent, and it catches flying insects, so insects fly along, um, and, and they get collected. There's a, a cyclone sampler that um, sucks in the air and and gets a little vial that when you look at it looks empty but inside it's collecting pollen and bacteria and fungal spores in the air. That all gets shipped off to um, University of uh, Helsinki and they do some DNA analysis and work out what's in there. And there's also some wildlife cameras to identify what wildlife might be in there. yeah. Not as exciting. There was a camera up in Greenland that had a polar bear and moose and those sorts of things. I don't know, you know, but that that's all right. Um, it's just about the science. So, and we're working with staff from natifato to Arake, so they're doing the collection weekly.
1: This amount of data collection is pretty full on. Luckily for the Living Labs project team. One of the things they're also investigating with co-lead Dr Brad Case, is how to use drones or unmanned aerial vehicles
0: to collect some of this data. We're also exploring how we can use remote sensing imagery to monitor restoration success and to monitor growth of forests. So we regularly fly UAVs over the sites and we will be, over time, using image processing to see what those imagery sequences can tell us about carbon sequestration and biodiversity gain. It's a multifaceted, multidisciplinary project.
1: And one of the interesting aspects is this collaboration and relationship between AUT and Ngāti Fatuā Orake.
4: You know, something that Ngāti Fatuā made clear from the very beginning was that this larger project was all about opening up to the wider community and, you know, for them it's a expression, an exercise of manaakitanga.
1: Dr. David Hall is a senior lecturer in the School of Social Sciences and Public Policy at AUT and the third co-leader of the project. He says the partnership was born out of connection and an invitation from Nāti Fatwa Ōrake to collaborate on revegetation.
4: So it emerged out of this invitation and then we had several hui where we just really talked about our ambitions and our aspirations and where those overlapped and also, you know, asked Natifato Arake what yeah, what they would see and like to see in a successful project of this type. And so we agreed to to rules to Tikanga that we would follow on the land
1: Not just Tikanga on the land but for the project as a whole including how the researchers could make the data and the experiments as accessible as possible
4: Ngati Fatwa made it very clear from the start that they were keen on educational opportunities and that the Knowledge that we gain from these sites is shared with local communities but shared with everybody as well. So we've always had open access principles to the way that we use the data and we're looking for ways to um, yeah, bring in other people and bring in different groups including schools to learn about ecology.
1: Jeff has already hosted several school and community groups on site. They've come and learnt about native forests, ecology, biodiversity and the challenges of addressing climate change. People are invited to help out, but also, if they want, to be a part of the research. And this all feeds into this idea of it being a real-life experiment.
4: The name of this programme is The Living Laboratories because we are doing experiments in real-life these aren't experiments happening in a sterile lab where we've got control over all of the variables and it's pointless to even pretend that we could achieve that. So so these are living laboratories that embrace the fact they're out in the world, they're engaging with all of that complexity and the local ecology. You know, we hope that they're not just living laboratories but also living classrooms that we can use these sites to inform and educate communities around ecology and how to do it well.
1: I think that struck me when Jeff was talking about the drought, you know they planted the trees and then straight up lost a few from drought yeah. and had to plant again.
4: But but we want this all of this knowledge to be actionable and um, for people to use that knowledge and they're going to face exactly those same dilemmas and those same shocks and surprises. And so we need to embrace that complexity because the people that use this knowledge are gonna be facing that complexity as well. So it's important that our processes reflect the sorts of decisions that land owners are having to make when they undertake their own revegetation projects.
1: David's research focus is on climate change policy, which, you know, pretty important these days.
4: I have been looking at land use for many years. Revegetation, reforestation, restoration of natural ecosystems is one of the strategies for addressing uh, climate change insofar as these ecosystems sequester carbon, but also they increase the resilience of landscapes and therefore can contribute to climate adaptation. Um, one of the challenges from a policy perspective is that our climate change policy is often focused on mitigation and specifically carbon sequestration and we see that especially through the development of carbon markets including our emissions trading scheme and this puts native forest at a disadvantage because generally it grows slower uh, than exotic species especially pinus radiata and it is also more expensive to establish. However, the native forest has benefits beyond that carbon sequestration, including the biodiversity value that we're studying here, that adaptation value, the enhancement of resilience in the landscape, and a whole lot of other environmental benefits, whether it's holding the soil and preventing erosion, um, purifying and regulating water, and so on and so forth.
1: The Climate Change Commission released advice to the government on the emissions trading scheme just last week. They suggested that, right now, it encourages tree planting as an offsetting method rather than incentivising an actual reduction in emissions. Essentially, as David put it, buying carbon credits, or New Zealand units as they're known, gives someone the right to emit In a statement, Climate Change Commission Chair Rod Carr said the New Zealand emission trading scheme is likely to deliver mostly new plantation forestry rather than gross emission reductions. And because pine is cheaper and faster to grow, more people are planting it to supply this carbon credit demand rather than native forests. But in a week when Canterbury was flooding and London was on fire, I asked David, well why wouldn't we just do that? Plant as many fast-growing trees as possible to suck carbon out of the air as quickly as possible.
4: One of the challenges is that rapid sequestration can come at a cost of long-term resilience. And it is is likely that forests which, which grow quickly and they're all of the same species and they're densely planted so that you can sequester as much carbon as possible... In the long run, they won't be resilient forests. They'll be prone to wind throw. They'll be prone to wildfire. They'll be prone to um, new diseases and and, um, pests. And while they may sequester carbon very well in the short term, they may not necessarily store it over the long term. And that's crucially what we need, is that we need those forests to keep the carbon out of the atmosphere, not just to bring it down, but to keep it over multiple generations, because if it returns to the atmosphere, it is going to keep continuing contributing to the problem of climate change.
1: So if we want to actually do it right, and not just kick the can down the road, what should we be incentivising?
4: The optimal answer would be to have policy mechanisms that reward those other values, so they reward biodiversity value and they reward adaptation value we just don't have them at the moment so we have a somewhat asymmetrical policy strategy which rewards carbon sequestration in isolation of those other benefits so in an ideal world we would actually internalise all of those uh, values, those wider suite of values into the way that we plan our policy frameworks.
1: This, then, is what the Living Laboratories project is all about. Trying to solve this puzzle of how to promote the restoration of native forests. They hope that by collecting the biodiversity and ecosystem function data as the forest grows, that they can demonstrate this wider suite of benefits that native bush provides. Alongside that, If they can figure out that cheapest, quickest, lowest risk way of fast forwarding succession to the big old native trees, well then that will make it more attractive to landowners in the future.
0: Underpinning research is really important because we can make our restoration projects more successful if we know more about what leads to success and potentially speed up the results. Thanks to Jeff
1: Silby, Dr. Hannah Buckley, and Dr. David Hall, all of the Auckland University of Technology. Thanks also to Rob Small, Garden's curator with Nati Fatwa Orake. This episode was produced by me, Claire Cannon, with editing help from Liz Garden. Sound engineering was by William Saunders. Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Check out the show's website at ironzconz ourchangingworld and if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Concanon. Kia pai to wiki.